0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Almost everyone has heard about the Netflix series called Tiger King. I didn't know anything about it, but it became very popular for reasons I don't really understand. But even seeing brief promos about it, I knew that I didn't want to invest any of my time trying to understand what appeared to be cruelty and nonsense combined. Well, it's finally time to explore this a little bit, because maybe something positive is gonna come out of this. I wanna welcome Tracy Letterman, Vice President of Federal Affairs for the Humane Society Legislative Fund, and Lisa Watney, Senior Strategist of Captive Wildlife for the Humane Society of the United States. Welcome to the program, Lisa and Tracy. Thank you. Thanks. Lisa, let's begin
1: with you. What was the Tiger King Netflix series about? The series featured a number of very flamboyant characters who operate roadside zoos and who make a living from breeding and handling big cats, um, mostly tigers, and who also charge the public to pet and play with and be photographed with tiger cubs. Mm. But the main subject of the series was a guy named Joseph Maldonado Passage, Who goes by Joe Exotic. So the annoying, obnoxious looking guy named Joe Exotic was the subject of
0: Netflix Tiger King. Lisa, tell us about Joe Exotic.
1: Well, Joe um, is somebody who for almost two decades ran a roadside zoo in Oklahoma that was called GW Exotics. Mm. He opened the zoo in 1999 and very quickly started acquiring lots of animals mostly big cats but just about any anything else you can think of as well and he also uh, started breeding animals but he really amped up the breeding when he realized there was money to be made by using the babies for public handling and in addition to exhibiting the animals at the zoo and very heavily promoting cub petting at the zoo. For quite a few years he also traveled around the country to malls and other venues doing a magic show and taking along baby animals for the public to pet and play with uh, during those shows.
0: Lisa, people love the chance to hold, pet, and take photos with Baby tigers, cute, mm-hmm. adorable cubs. Tell us what's
1: wrong with cub petting. Yeah, who who wouldn't who wouldn't want to hold a baby tiger? Um, but I think most people, when they realize how ultimately very cruel it is, would um, would turn down that opportunity. Cub petting basically is offered at a lot of roadside zoos and county fairs, et cetera, across the country. Exhibitors take baby animals most often tiger cubs and the public can pay to hold them or have their picture taken with them or you know play with them for a very short amount of time but the humane society of the united states has conducted undercover investigations at three facilities that breed tigers and use the cubs for public handling Uh, one of those facilities was joe exotics in oklahoma The other was Tiger Safari in Oklahoma, and then a place in Virginia called Natural Bridge Zoo. And without exception, we found severe abuse and neglect at these facilities. And it was all in the pursuit of making money by offering the Tiger Cubs for public interactions. The cruelty begins on day one. Uh, The babies are torn away from their mothers at birth, and that's standard procedure at facilities that offer cub petting. And for anyone who did see Tiger King, um, it showed very brief footage of a tiger cub being pulled underneath a fence with a pole and away from his mom just moments after he was born. And it was really a horrific scene, but it's the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the cruelty that is involved in using tiger cubs for public interactions. Wow. You know, some might say that cub petting
0: raises awareness and helps with conservation efforts. How would you respond to this claim?
1: Absolutely not. This is a very common justification for people that conduct this activity. And I think that um, it's partly to, I think at some level, many people, when they see this, they they recognize that something's not quite right with this. And um, this helps assuage their, their guilt maybe a little bit, but it just isn't true. Studies confirm that seeing humans interact with endangered animals actually has a negative impact on public conservation attitudes because it leads people to falsely believe that those animals are not threatened or endangered in the wild. And in addition, people who are allowed to handle exotic animals or who see others interacting and handling them um, are often inspired to get wild animals as pets. So it's just any way you look at it, it, there's nothing educational or... um, are beneficial to conservation. About it,
0: Lisa. Why did the series become so popular? To tell you the truth, I was a little shocked and disappointed that so many people liked watching it.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I think for those of us who who know the backstory and know that the extensive cycle of cruelty that is involved with uh, cub petting, it, it, it's hard to understand. But there's no doubt that that Joe and the the other um, people featured in this uh, series, they're very, they're larger than life and they are outlandish and they're outrageous. And and it was, I mean, why is any reality TV so popular? I, I don't relate to it, but obviously a lot of people do. Lisa,
0: what happened to big shot Joe Exotic? And more importantly, what happened to the big cats from his facility?
1: Well, as Joe was touring the country to malls uh, do, with his magic show and his, his cubs, there were a lot of animal protection organizations that worked to stop him, uh, contacting malls, asking them to cancel his show, asking them not to have him back, basically educating places about why it wasn't okay to be featuring this and the harm that was being caused to the animals. And there was one facility in particular called Big Cat Rescue, which is an accredited uh, big cat sanctuary in Florida that um, worked especially hard at this. And Joe, out of anger, started using the Big Cat Rescue name. He appropriated their name for his show. Big Cat Rescue sued him for that and won, and he was ordered to pay them nearly a million dollars to settle the lawsuit. Joe's anger and frustration at Big Cat Rescue was taken one step further um, when he hired someone, hired a hitman, to kill the sanctuary's founder and to make a long story short he didn't get away with that Um, undercover fbi agents uh, were involved in busting him and in april of last of 2019 he was found guilty of murder for hire as well as 17 federal wildlife crimes there were also you know some horrible animal issues that they got him on and he's now sitting in federal prison so he's a convicted felon Mm-hmm. What happened to the animals? Not too long before he was tried and ultimately convicted, he turned his facility over to a guy named Jeff Lowe. Joe got rid of a lot of the animals at his park before he left, but not all of them. And Jeff Lowe Brought with him from New York is where he had been based, um, a a bunch of animals of his own big cats, mostly, but Jeff Lowe is cast from the same mold as all these other reprehensible people that were featured in tiger King. And in fact, he was, he was a good part of, um, tiger King. He's operated for years, um, breeding big cats, using cubs for public handling, trading animals to substandard facilities. He's been cited repeatedly for violations of the Federal Animal Welfare Act. And in fact, just last week, the USDA suspended his license for 21 days. They also filed a complaint against, against him, basically charges against him, asking for his license to be revoked. Now, it may take quite a while for that to work its way through the process but um hopefully he will not be opening again as i stated earlier i refused to watch a single
0: episode of tiger king was the series successful at exposing the facts and
1: horrors of roadside zoos no not at all you know in addition to failing to expose the extensive cycle of cruelty involved with cub petting, it ignored the fact that conditions for animals at roadside zoos are typically just miserable. These are outdated and unaccredited facilities that routinely fail to comply with even the very minimal standards of the Animal Welfare Act. Most of them have a litany of citations from failure to provide veterinary care to dangerous animal handling practices, to unsafe housing for animals, Tiger King pointed out none of that.
0: Has social media played a role in the problems and cruelty faced by captive wild animals? Like, does social media make things better or worse for the animals?
1: In this case, and in, in the case of cub petting, it definitely has made it has made it worse. It's people seem to have a, just an insatiable desire for selfies to post on Facebook and Instagram or whatever. And it. Um, there's no doubt that, you know, when people are, in fact, our undercover investigators saw it when they, when they were at these facilities, that people would have their photos taken with these tiger cubs. And the first thing they'd say, I'm going to post this to Facebook, put it on Facebook right away. And, it's really fueled an industry that exploits and causes great harm to captive wild animals, not just tiger cubs, tiger cubs mostly because they are used um, most often for these things, but we're seeing facilities expand out to of many other species of animals too it's harmful to them all and the best way to help is for people to simply refuse to patronize these facilities that allow public interactions with wild animals okay don't go away we're going to continue our discussion
0: about the american former zoo operator and convicted felon joe exotic and continue our discussion about the cruelties inherent in roadside zoos you're listening to animals today This is Dr. Laurie, and you're listening to Animals Today. I'm proud to say that Animals Today is now in its 12th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Visit them at aianimals.org. And if you like listening to this radio show and you like what we're doing, consider making a donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals to support the ongoing broadcast of animals today. Their website is aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And click Support Us. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Tracy Letterman, Vice President of Federal Affairs for the Humane Society Legislative Fund, and Lisa Watney, Senior Strategist of Captive Wildlife for the Humane Society of the United States.
1: Lisa, do we know how many privately owned big cats there are across the country? Unfortunately, we don't. There is no federal agency that tracks these animals. But in general, it's estimated that there are five to 7,000 tigers in captivity in the United States. You know,
0: I've talked about this on the show before. It's been estimated that there are only around 3,800 tigers remaining in the wild today. 3,800 Tragically, there are more tigers in captivity than in the wild. Most of these beautiful creatures are kept in captivity in zoos, are kept as exotic pets, or bred to produce products like baby cubs. Tracy, one would think, I would think, there are laws to prevent this kind of animal abuse and exploitation of owning and exploiting wild animals. Are there animal protection laws and regulations that protect these animals?
2: Well, a few states have these public contact bans on the state level, but there's no national ban preventing these public contact activities, and that's what's needed here. Tell us about the Big Cat Public Safety Act. So the Big Cat Public Safety Act, it was introduced by Representatives Quigley and Fitzpatrick on the House side and Senator Blumenthal on the Senate side. And the bill does two main things. So first, it prohibits individuals from keeping big cats as pets. Because big cats, they don't belong in basements or backyards. And this is just common sense. Cats have complex behavioral and veterinary needs that can't be met by pet owners. Also, keeping big cats as pets is harmful for public safety reasons because they can escape, they can injure and kill people. And since 1990, there have been at least 400 dangerous incidents involving captive big cats. And that includes five children and 19 adults who have been killed and then hundreds others that have lost limbs or suffered traumatic injuries. And the National Sheriff's Association and the Fraternal Order of Police, they support the bill. Because when these dangerous situations occur with big cats, it's the first responders who are usually called to deal with the situation, even though these officials typically do not have training in handling these animals. And then the second thing the bill does, it prohibits public contact with big cats. So big cat encounters such as petting, feeding, swimming, taking selfies with the cubs would be prohibited. And this is really important for a few reasons. So first, the ban is needed for the health and welfare of the cubs so the cubs are taken from their mothers as newborns and deprived of proper maternal care and this harms their healthy development mm-hmm. and then the excessive handling makes the cubs vulnerable to disease and then it deprives them of sleep and then also there's public safety concerns because even though the person may be handling a cub they can still scratch and bite and then finally The ban is important to prevent irresponsible breeding because after just a few months, when the cubs are too large to be easily handled, they end up warehoused in these substandard facilities like roadside zoos or with private individuals or killed. Um, But to keep the money flowing from these public contact activities, new cubs are continually produced, resulting in this never-ending cycle of big cats being born, used for public contact, and then disposed. Okay, so in summary, the Big Cat Public Safety Act will prohibit the private possession
0: of wild cats and no cub petting,
2: no photo ops, right? It would prohibit specifically uh, public contact, right? I see, and big cat meaning all lions, tigers, leopards, cheetahs, jaguars, right? That's right. So. People like Joe Exotic would be prevented from offering public contact encounters, and only a small number of facilities offer these activities. Uh, but this small group causes a significant amount of harm. The vast majority of zoos operate successfully without offering these encounters, and so they would not be impacted by this bill. What's the status of the
0: bill now and what are the next steps?
2: So it's really fantastic that there's this public dialogue going on now about banning cup and keeping big cats as Pets, um, because the fact is, banning these inhumane practices should not be controversial. So, on the House side, there's momentum towards passage. There are 230 co sponsors. So, that's well over half of the House. Mm. So, the bill passed out of committee in September and it's teed up for a vote by the full House. And our hope is is that given the widespread attention to these issues, House leadership will allow the bill to move forward and receive a vote. And then on the Senate side, we wanna encourage the public to contact their senators in support of this bill, because the more senators that hear from their constituents about the bill, the better chance it has for passage by the end of the year what else can listeners do to help please reach out to your members of congress and if you need help finding their contact information you can go to hslf.org and click take action for the big cats bill hslf.org
0: let federal legislators know that you're supporting the big cat public safety act ask your member of congress to support the big cat public safety act as well Don't support the industry. You don't need a selfie with a baby tiger. Educate your family and friends. Tigers are not domesticated cats. They're wild animals who need to remain in the wild. Tracy Letterman and Lisa Watney, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you very much. More with animals today, right after the break.
3: You look upset.
2: I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water
1: given to him.
3: You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call animal services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is
4: properly taken care of.
2: Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number?
3: Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion. They need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to animal services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org.
0: Hi, this is And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com.
3: AnimalsTodayRadio.com.
0: And visit us on Facebook.
3: And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Animals Today. Not long ago, we spoke about the dogs who worked in World War I, a very fascinating topic, and uh, many countries in Europe did indeed use dogs. And you know, we wondered, and you may have wondered, how were dogs used in the Second World War? Well, I'm very pleased to have the perfect person to answer this. His name is Trevor Jones, and uh, Trevor is the director and CEO of History Nebraska. Uh, He's an award-winning author of numerous books and articles, and uh, he has got a lot of experience working as a museum curator, designer, and educator. Welcome, Trevor.
4: Thank you very much, Peter.
3: Okay, so let's talk about uh, the programs that employed dogs, United States-based dogs in World War II, please.
4: Absolutely. The the program in World War II was called dogs for defense and it was unique. It's the only time in American history that this had happened. So when we entered World War II, we were fighting a war on two fronts and suddenly it was clear that anything that the American military could do to to free up soldiers to fight was a good thing for us to do. And so the thought was if we use dogs to um, patrol, Um, military installations or to go on patrols or detect landmines or to carry bad bandages uh, for hospitals, anything that dogs could do would be helpful for the war effort. And there was only one really major problem with that was that the U.S. military had no dogs whatsoever. It had no dog training program, no animals, nothing. And suddenly they were confronted with this gap. And so what they did was they asked the the people of the United States to donate their pets really? to the military and serve in the armed forces. And so what happened was by the thousands, people donated their dogs, their, their own family dogs, their, their pets, and they um, shipped them off in crates uh, on trains and they shipped them primarily to Fort Robinson, Nebraska, western part of Nebraska, and they trained them to be soldiers and those dogs served in every theater of World War II um that had been family pets earlier and then they were trained to be soldiers and then they they served in combat um they served to guard installations they did all kinds of things how do you train a dog for service they had a training program and at the beginning i want you to imagine that they were so desperate they didn't really think of a lot about breeds yeah. and they didn't think they they thought if the dog was big enough if it weighed enough that was fine and so they had um you know, dogs that you would think of as service dogs today, like, um, Dalmatians, uh, you know, for they had Dalmatians, they had German Shepherds, they had Great Danes, they had Poodles, they had everything that you could think of, and they tried to train them to do these different functions. So there was basically, just like it was for human soldiers at the time, there was basic dog training that they did, which was about a six week course, and if the dog passed basic training, then it would go on to advanced training, just like soldiers did to go off to advanced infantry school or, or whatever. And those dogs would then get trained to be a scout dog, or they get trained to be a attack dog, or they get trained to be a mind detecting dog. And so that's how they, they did it. And uh, at Fort Robinson, at any given time, they would have 6,000 dogs there together all in training uh, at one time. So the scale was enormous.
3: Is there an individual who spearheaded this? How did this all come
4: together? There were different people that certainly had this idea and sold uh, the U.S. government on it. Uh, One of the most important ones was a woman named Aline Erlanger, and she was a dog breeder, and she believed strongly in the power of dogs to do all kinds of things. And she was a huge proponent of the Dogs for Defense program, and she was a great publicist. So one of the things that they did was they got movie stars to donate their dogs to the program. And then they got media attention about the movie stars donating the dogs and they got Purina to, to do a corporate sponsorship of the program. So they were very savvy to get the American people on board with this and, and they embraced it. People, people did embrace it. It was not, it was not easy. The, it was not easy then, as you can imagine, um, not easy to give up your pet, uh, for, for something larger with no guarantee that your pet's ever going to come safely home. But the American people did this. They embraced this challenge. Do we know how many of the dogs did not make it back? The figures are, are a bit sketchy. The, the military did not keep all of the you know, super accurate figures on this. So it's a little bit hard to tell in exact numbers. About, um, say, 50% of the dogs actually made it through the training program. So, uh, you know, not every dog was taken and they would send them home at government expense. So if you donated your pet in 1943 and your dog didn't, you know, couldn't hack it, uh, they would send your dog back to you and and say, good try. Um, And certainly um, it's hard to know, but thousands of dogs did die in World War II and some were killed in combat, some were killed in accidents. Uh, a lot of them, just like um, you know, soldiers in every war, um, died of disease. Um, distemper was a, a was a big challenge in World War II. Um, so you had no guarantee that your dog would would come home at the end of the conflict, and and many dogs did not. Yeah, and
3: the dogs needed to be debriefed as it as it were when they came back.
4: Yes, absolutely, and this is my favorite part of the program because it it seems. Um, so strange that, that they would do this today, um, but the American, the government felt very strongly that um, the American people had donated their dogs and so they were alone and they had a responsibility to them. So when the war ended and they didn't need these dogs anymore, the military decided we need to give these back to the people that donated them. So they sent them all, all of these dogs that survived went back to Fort Robinson, Nebraska. And they went through a detraining period so they could become pets again. So if you had donated your dog to this program in 1943, in 1945, when the war ended 75 years ago now, uh, nearly exactly, then your dog would get shipped to you back to you at government expense. And not only would it come back to you, it would be really well-trained and you'd get a little doggy discharge paper, uh, discharge certificate saying that your dog had served honorably in the U S armed forces during world war II, just like any veteran would, any human veteran. So they really cared about this. And, and I think, you know, today, you know, you, you might think of military assets as being like a tank or a, a plane when you're done with it, you just discard it. But, in that time they really felt like the american people gave up their pets and so we owe it to them to return those pets in the best condition we have and so um you know the the um book that i that i've written about this um it's a true story about a dog that was given up and when that dog comes home the actual true story about that is when the dog came home came back after world war ii uh that the the little boy who donated his dad used to take it down to the local bar and have major do tricks for uh, the different people at the bar, just to show what a well-trained dog that he was. He was yeah. the best trained dog in the county. Uh, so there was, you know, there was a lot of pride in having your dog serve in World War II.
3: Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. You are a serious historian, but you did uh, see an opportunity to write a really charming, illustrated uh, children's book. And, and uh, I'm glad you did it because a lot of the books we get are really about nothing. And this really says something. So th- thank you for putting that out there.
4: Yeah, I mean, the, the reason behind doing the, the children's book telling the story about dogs for defense and people donating their dogs in World War II is I wanted to get at these ideas of patriotism and sacrifice. And I think those are abstract concepts even for adults to understand a lot of times and for kids even harder to say, what is it what does it mean to sacrifice something for something you believe in? But when you phrase that question, um, as I often do, is would you give up your pet? To help your country or would you give up your pet for something larger than yourself that becomes very concrete because we love our pets i mean we you know people those that's that's your family and that that brings an abstract concept very much to the concrete and that's why I wanted to do this as a children 's book to say people actually did this and think about what this meant to people at that time, if you love your dog or your cat or whatever, would you give it up for something with no guarantee that it's going to come back to you safely with the idea that that it's that's a sacrifice for a larger for a larger good and yeah. that that 's a really tough question to answer and and i I ask that question pretty much every time I talk with people about this, and I say, would you Would you give up your pet to help your country? And honestly, the answer most of the time I hear is no way.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, we've got this well-established program, the war ends. And so what happens to this program? Have we learned anything that uh, we take forward as a society or perhaps in law enforcement
4: or even in the military itself? Well, in a lot of ways, yes, because the dog, they had to develop the dog training program on the fly during world war II, and they wrote a manual and it was called, uh, you know, in, in typical military speak, technical manual comma war dogs. And that was the sort of the training Bible that they put together in world war two. And that document basically becomes the basis for how, um, service dogs get trained after world war two and how military dogs get trained and, one of the important things to note is that, you know, a lot of the people that trained dogs in World War II went on to civilian careers and they trained um, dogs for the visually impaired and they trained military dogs and they used those same techniques. And one of the key parts of that is they decided early on in World War II, and this was not the way that dog training was necessarily done previous to this, but they decided that you could not, have a good relationship with a dog if it was built on fear, that it had to be built on reward and trust. And then so the dog handler and the dog needed to work together as a unit. And that has been the key for service and military dog training since World War II. Um, But prior to that point, there was a lot of thought about that you needed to basically break the dog. Um, and sort of you know, beat the dog until the dog um, gave up and then you'd build that dog back. And what they discovered was that did not work, that the dog needed that level of, of encouragement and trust. And so that, pro, that, that manual, that technical manual became the basis uh, for dog training. We've improved that radically since then, but if you're looking for the origins of, of service dog training and military dog training, you can really look back to the American experience in World War II and say these are the lessons that they learned then.
3: We have been speaking with Trevor Jones. He is with History Nebraska. How can people find History Nebraska online?
4: If you go to history.nebraska.gov, you can see um, about Fort Robinson, Nebraska. It's a historic site that we operate. You can go still tour where they train these dogs and, and see artifacts from that time period. You can also see pictures of the war dog program if you just type in war dogs into our search bar and you can see the actual pictures of them training dogs and doing all kinds of things. So if you wanna do that, if you're interested in purchasing major a soldier dog, you can go to history.nebraska.gov slash books and buy it there. Independent booksellers everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's a fascinating little unknown American story.
3: Indeed it is. Thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, more with Animals Today right after this break.
0: back to animals today hey peter hey Lori. do you worry about going in the ocean
3: oh uh i worry about jellyfish worry about jellyfish do you worry Jelly about fish? sharks no i don't worry about sharks maybe i should
0: i want to know how much you know about
3: sharks okay
0: not let's much. see
3: i'm gonna just tell you not much i have a quiz for you yes
0: all about sharks okay ready Peter, true or false? You have a greater chance of being struck dead by lightning than being killed by a shark attack.
3: Mm, I'm gonna say that is true.
0: That is true. About thirty people die during shark attacks each year. But it is true. For every one human killed by a shark, how many sharks are killed by humans? Two hundred thousand, a half a million, or two million? Two million. That's correct. Yeah. For every human killed by a shark, two million sharks are killed by humans isn't that sad yes scientists used to i I don't know if they still do but they used to study shark cartilage to research possible cures for what for arthritis cancer oh yeah scientists study shark cartilage to research possible cures for cancer because sharks rarely ever develop cancer
3: that didn't work out so well.
0: right what is the world's largest shark the great white shark tiger shark whale shark
3: Sure, that's the whale shark. Very
0: good. It can grow up to 50 feet long and weigh more than 40,000 pounds. True or false, sharks have an acute sense of hearing.
3: Oh, hearing. That's true.
0: True is correct. Some sharks can hear prey from up to 3,000 feet away. Sharks lose a lot of teeth and grow them back quickly. So how many teeth do you think sharks go through in a lifetime?
3: Okay, I'm going to guess about 500... Teeth per life?
0: 30,000.
3: Oh my goodness. The
0: average shark has 40 to 45 teeth and can have up to seven rows of replacement teeth.
3: So, if you're one of those people who likes to wear a shark's tooth around your neck like it's something special, it really isn't. They're all over the place. How many bones do sharks have in their body? Oh, I think I know they don't have any bone.
0: Did you know they're classified as vertebrates? Well, yeah. Okay. Isn't that interesting though? Okay. Vertebrate means you have a bony skeleton, right? Oh, that's
3: good paradox there. I wonder how that slid through.
0: The term cartilaginous fish means that the structure of the animal's body is formed of cartilage instead of bone. They don't have a bony skeleton like many other fish do. Peter, did sharks inhabit the earth before, during, or after the dinosaurs appeared? Before. How did you know what I was going to ask?
3: I I know it. How did I know? I, I just said know.
0: before the.
3: I know be, before the Planet of the Apes, <laughs> four hundred million years ago.
0: Sharks inhabited the Earth two hundred million, 200 million years, years before the dinosaurs right. appeared, right. and have changed only minimally during that time.
3: I know that's really amazing. It's incredible.
0: What percent of shark
3: attack victims are men? Oh, uh, how do they taste? Let's see. I, if I was a shark, uh, I'm going to say that ni- 85% are men. How do they taste? Is that <laughs> <laughs> Men
0: taste so much better than women. Yes, 90%. Yeah. Despite the fact that almost equal amount of men and women swim in the ocean, men account for nearly 90% of shark attack victims. Mm-hmm. Do you think most shark attacks occur in relatively shallow waters or deep waters?
3: I'll say the shallow waters.
0: Yep, about two-thirds of shark attacks on humans have occurred in less than six feet of water. Mm. Do sharks lay eggs or give birth to live young? Okay, live birth. It's actually both. Oh, explain. Some sharks lay eggs, others give birth to live young. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. True or false? The film Jaws, though heavily fictionalized was based on a real incident in 1916 where four people were killed by a shark off the coast of new jersey
3: okay that story i'm gonna say that's a true story it is
0: true did you know that
3: no no yeah i didn't either better get a bigger boat remember that line yes oh my god is that how is that was that the exact line i I don't know i can't remember but there's some where you're gonna need a bigger yeah yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) after they first spotted jaws yeah there's a few pretty intense moments
3: in that movie i know and not the fake thing coming out of the water that's supposed to be a shark though that was pretty (laughs) old-fashioned
0: the cookie cutter shark is named after what
3: cutter shark? I don't know oh oh is this the shape that it leaves in your yes. in your body after it takes a bite out of you? <laughs> yes <laughs> that's good that's did horrible. you know that or was no, that just, just like a, an educated guess oh, that's a horrible thing <laughs> I know.
0: Oh. you get bitten by a shark oh this must be oh. a cookie oh look mom I got a
3: cookie cutter don't piranhas leave a Certain shape when can, they take a little bite out of your I can flesh ice cream also. scoop, or... <laughs> a little. <laughs> I think okay, they Okay, you asked. I'm not going in the ocean. This, this okay. I don't care. I don't. I'm not going in deep water or shallow water or anything. I'm just gonna stay by the cocktail lounge.
0: <laughs> You're gonna stay in the waiting pool with I, cocktail in each hand.
3: <laughs> I, waiting pools are pretty dangerous too. If you know <laughs> what I mean.
0: True or false? Some sharks can live in both salt and fresh water. I'm going to say that's true. That's true. Bull sharks can live in both salt and fresh water by
3: regulating the substances in their blood. Yeah, that ability is just the most amazing thing to think about.
0: That's it, Peter. You did pretty good.
3: Okay. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and this Animals Today Minute is about dog bites and how to avoid and prevent them. According to the CDC, approximately 4.5 million dog bites on people occur yearly. That means about 1 in 72 people get bitten each year by dogs. Now, we all love our dogs, but it's smart to know some of the facts about bites. National Dog Bite Prevention Week takes place during the second full week of April each year and focuses on educating people about preventing dog bites. According to the AVMA, most, if not all, bites can be prevented. By far, children are the most common victims of dog bites, followed by the elderly and, yes, postal carriers. We all know that the medical consequences of bites can be serious, like causing infections, causing severe pain, requiring surgery, causing disfigurement, and so on. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons reported that nearly 29,000 reconstructive procedures were performed in 2016 for injuries caused by dog bites. And dog bites often result in homeowners insurance claims. According to the data of the Insurance Information Institute, there were more than 18,000 dog bite insurance claims in 2017, with the average cost paid out per claim being about $37,000. When dogs bite, it is usually in response to something like the dog being stressed, scared, startled, or threatened. So the situations need to be managed by us people. And dog owners should properly socialize their pets. There's lots of information online about how to do that. And duh, we should keep our dogs on leashes when they're out. And choose the right dog for your family. And of course, make sure they're fixed. Do appropriate obedience training and keep them well exercised. Remember... A tired dog is a happy dog. A few especially risky situations have been identified, including when the dog is not with its owner, when the dog is with its owner, but the owner has not given permission to pet the dog, injured or sick dogs, dogs that are sleeping or eating, and growling and barking dogs. There are other common sense things to do to avoid bites, like avoiding placing one's hand through a fence where a dog is on the other side, and allowing dogs who want to be left alone their space. It bears repeating that far and away, most people who are bitten by dogs are children. So parents and dog guardians keep that in mind when they're near each other. Everyone agrees, even though dogs are man's best friend, there are too many people getting bitten by dogs. Do your part to make avoidable dog bites a rare occurrence. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that's your Animals Today Minute for today. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.